Yay, capitalism. <laughs> Remember that great line from Austin Powers? It's a very groovy time, baby. <laughs> we have both freedom and responsibility. I think that's from the end of the movie. It's early on when he wakes up from his, his uh, hey, cyber comrades. <laughs> cryo sleep <laughs> and just assumes that communism is one. <laughs> we show those capitalist pigs. Austin, we won. Okay, if you were not born in the same decade we were and therefore went to college in the same decade we did, this may not mean very much to you. So anyway, uh, today's topic is a little bit more uh, big picture, pulling back. Um, in the last episode, we talked about de-googling. And one of the reasons for de-googling is partly just because we don't want to feed the beast. Um, Google's security is excellent. Right. And if you pay for your Google account, it's also very private. It can be. Well, parts of it are the content is private. Content. Your metadata... Right, uh, which um, uh, 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 and which your metadata, which the CIA says it has killed people because of metadata. So yeah. it's not as um, uh, insignificant as we might think. Um, the metadata is still completely more or less open with Google, right? Uh, but they do keep their their business accounts at a different degree of privacy than the public ones. Right. But I think for the two of us, as much as anything, because our threat model model is not at state level. No. <laughs> but uh, just not wanting to feed the beast any further. Right. And, um, and I think, so the, the topic I would like to discuss today is kind of, well, it's capitalism. <laughs> because, capitalism. Well, one of the books that was most important for us actually like fully grasping what's going on and beginning this podcast and beginning changes in our lives was Shoshana Zuboff's book, Surveillance Capitalism. Yeah. And by the way, she's such a lovely interviewee in, uh, in, in the documentary, this, the, the Facebook documentary, The, the, social, the, the dilemma. social Dilemma. Right, yeah. I love um, her glasses and her hair. And her hair, right. Um, and she teaches at Harvard Business School. So, like. Very mainstream. Yes. Um, and also, I'm currently reading a book, which I'm sure I'll talk about more in the future, called Choke Point Capitalism, um, which is really about tech companies in particular using what any reasonable human being would conclude are extremely dishonest and non-transparent business practices to extort and extract larger and larger amounts of money from um, both consumers and producers of culture. So needless to say, both these books have the word capitalism in them. And so what I have found is that when you start to raise questions about the abuses of big tech and why one might want to disentangle oneself mm. from these systems, sooner or later, the Someone's going to say, well, this is the whole problem with capitalism. Capitalism is essentially this extractive system, this winner-takes-all system, and maybe we should be rethinking capitalism altogether. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, that's. I, I heard that not one week ago. I was listening to one of the uh, privacy podcasts that I uh, frequent, which is called Surveillance Report. It's a couple of um, guys, maybe even still in college uh, or just recently graduated, um, Great podcast, highly recommended. Um, but one they have in their question and answer session, somebody wrote in, "What's at the root cause of all of it?" And um, they said, "Well, you know, I think it must just be capitalism." Right. And I think by that uh, he meant um, getting what you can while you can, uh, making as much money as you possibly can as quickly as you can, and by whatever means legally, legally, or maybe pre-legally. As possible, and that seemed to be the operative de definition of what capitalism is. Another friend of mine who I just talked to yesterday was complaining about the era of Reagan and Thatcher, uh, uh, saying that that was the era where greed became good. 
right? Right, yes. You hear that a lot. So, um, first of all, let's observe that before the modern industrial banking, free trade, everything, there were extractive systems such as slavery and monarchy monarchy and <laughs> feudalism feudalism serfdom okay so uh, extractive guilds. yeah ex- um. I'm, I'm i'm a little friendlier to guilds than you are but anyway the point is that extractive systems that uh tend towards winner take all are part of the ongoing legacy of human history and if you are um not so foolish as to be a utopian you realize that these things must be constantly addressed and hemmed in you cannot craft a system that is permanently resistant and as proof of that so this is the problem is that when westerners say capitalism is bad implicitly the alternative is communism and uh, i have spent a fair amount of time trying to understand communism better partly because there was a point at which i was wondering like gosh you know was it worth it i mean we've admitted here we are U.S. Americans and our nation has done a lot of bad things in the name of fighting communism so at some point I was just sort of a conscientious citizen question to myself like was it worth it well I don't think the U.S. should have done a lot of the stuff it did but communism is abysmally horribly evil it is actually worse than the worst things that the U.S. has done and it is something that believes utopianly in ending extractive systems, it ends up being far more extractive than any capitalist system. And you only have to look uh, now at the companies, that the con- companies, <laughs> the countries that call themselves communists to see what the problems are. Yeah. Um, North Korea, North Venezuela, Korea, and Cuba. Come on. Uh, these are places which, um, uh, while uh, they may guard many beautiful cultural artifacts, are orders of magnitude less prosperous uh, with citizenries that would love to leave. Um, uh, and And or being kept um, in the dark about the their state of affairs. Yeah. So I think the first thing we have to say is that the simple binary between capitalism and communism, and if you have any reservations about what you ca- are calling capitalism, you have to turn to communism, is, is should just be a non-starter. It, this is just a bad way of framing the whole well, debate. It, it's a bad way of framing the debate because the word capitalism was really made up by Marx uh, and so the dichotomy, in a really Hegelian sense, uh, is bound up in the whole discussion. Uh, so um, I think that capitalism is actually the wrong word because it's actually not what went on. Um, uh, this is the myth that the prosperity of the West um, was extracted from the rest of the world, accumulated, and that gave rise to this explosion of innovation that was more or less stolen from the rest of the world. Right. And, and this th- is not to deny that the West has not ga- engaged in extraction. Oh, no, Certainly there's been plenty of extraction that, to, to, to go around. That's true. But I think it's simply not supported in the historical record that um, the economies uh, of the West um, got wealthy off the rest of the world. That's just not how it happened. Or that, that it's uniquely extractive compared to the rest of the world. That's not true either. Uh, that's yeah. also not true. Um, in fact, even today, um, this is something I learned quite uh, recently in an excellent, excellent series of books that I, I just finished reading by Deirdre McCloskey on the bourgeois virtues, uh, the bourgeois and bourgeois equality, um, where she makes the empirical case that Western countries are far more likely to invest in other Western developed countries than in the developing world. Um, far more wealth transfer is happening between wealthy countries than between 
uh, poor countries and wealthy countries and vice versa. So anyway, that's a sort of separate question. So that well, the whole notion of capitalism per se is a historically um, and ideologically problematic content, uh, concept because it actually doesn't reflect how prosperity um, or what McCloskey calls the great enrichment mm. happened in Northwestern Europe in particular, including um, uh, the United States and Canada. Right. And just on the whole, just idea of capital, it's just an elementary observation that if you don't have anything at all, any, right. any resources to hand, right. then it's very hard to get started. Right. So having a way to get access to stuff that you don't have yet is how you get your your toe in the water of the economy and then that allows you to start generating wealth and participating in trading well how do you get access to what you have no access to by a loan and how is a loan worthwhile to the lender by charging interest right so i just like again the the idea is always of, of capitalist lenders you know and and usury and loan sharking and of course all these things do exist but the idea be i mean i think the the, the basically actually good idea behind capital is uh, at with which includes lending at interest means it actually pulls people into the economy so they can generate wealth rather than keeping them forever out of it and some of the more um historical bust-ups have happened because like in serfdom or um, I remember reading Umberto Eco once talking about how in Italy in the 60s one of the reasons there was such social unrest is because there was this you know hundreds of years deep inherited uh, aristocratic lock on access to wealth and land and if you were not part of that there was just absolutely nothing to do right so how do you get into a system that doesn't let you in otherwise? Well, you can have a bloody revolution, or you can start lending people money so and capital so they can start getting involved. Yeah, obviously it's a complex question, and now the word capital has a life of its own, and people are going to keep using it whether uh, whether I like it or not, and, and probably in a very imprecise way. Right, um, which leads us to another highly problematic word, which is neoliberalism. <laughs> It has taken me so long to like really grasp what is meant by this because I think the way I started learning economics was not from that frame of reference. And if you just take the word from its component parts, it makes no sense why this movement is even called. I mean, someone can probably give an explanation, but it just gives you the wrong impression. Yeah, well, and neoliberalism is usually said with a sneer. And like my friend who I was talking to yesterday, um, associated with Reagan and Thatcher and uh, assuming that greed is good or right. associating with the phrase that greed is good. Right. So I think, so what I think now people mean when they talk about neoliberal capitalism as this really horrible thing that has to be stopped, there's a few things involved. So the first thing involved is that the only people that matter in the economy are the investors who hold stocks and either want um, their good um, what do you call it? The dispersed amount from your stock. The every dividend. Month. The dividend. Thank you. Or <laughs> they the want good return. dividends, capital returns, or that they can trade and make a killing. Right. And so all business decisions are oriented towards transferring wealth from everybody in the economy. That includes the consumers, the workers, the inventors, the entrepreneurs. Right. All of that is swept aside in an imperative to give everything to the shareholders right. of the of the stock of the corporate stock company yeah. that seems to be the main thing well and i think it. in a political sense neoliberalism too is uh has come to be attached to um the um 
imposition uh, from upon high by institutions, large international institutions such as the World Bank and, and the International Monetary Fund of neoliberal reforms uh, upon, as conditions for struggling, financially struggling states to get loans. And so, um, so the model of getting a loan to pull yourself out of poverty has been used in this um, discourse to entrap poor nations and peoples in debts they're unable to extract themselves from. Right. And that certainly is also happening. But I think the key thing here is the deep involvement of governments in ensuring this kind of disproportionate power. And I think the the visual everyone has is the big, bad, subprime mortgage lenders coming out of their meeting with Obama smiling right. because it turns out the government was going to bail them out because they were right. too big to so, fail. And that is what's called capitalism, uh, when in fact it's precisely the opposite of what I would prefer, um, uh, pr- the vocabulary term that I would pr- prefer would, would might be classical liberalism or um, free uh, market economy or... Um, Another term one might use is an economy that promotes uh, innovation and and um, permits creative destruction. Yeah. Um, so what should have happened when those bankers came out, and again, I'm not a monetary theorist, but it seems like there's a lot of shenanigans, shenanigans going on. Um, it, they ought to have um, failed. Failed. Right. There is no too big to fail, um, and they should have failed. Um, right. And yeah. I think people were trying to avoid the Great Depression, and again, this is complicated. Uh, the way um, bankers, uh, central bankers, manage the money supply is uh, an arcane thing. But the notion that these large institutions took tremendous moral hazard with other people's money and didn't pay the consequences is um, a moral shortcoming. Past the, and that's not a free market. They were bailed out by everybody else. Right. So I think the way we came to this is by being actually interested in the freedom and right of people to trade labor and goods and services. And so something like that is so far from what you and I came into, like being pro-capitalist and (laughs) anti-communist. Actually, what we're looking at there is something actually a lot closer to the kind of communism that I've come to despise, which is this unholy alliance of economy and state where they should be mutually correcting. And I think that can go in both directions. Yeah, well, this is the the side of um, the accumulation of money uh, that uh, part of the game of the accumulation of money is that once you get it, you want to keep it. And so this is where uh, the free market or um, a liberal economy um, needs to step in with very strict uh, uh, rule of law to prevent um, large, um, rich people and corporations from using the apparatus of the state to keep and promote their particular uh, business model. Right. So this is what's called uh, in the business 
regulatory capture. Well, that's one uh, ways. Or well, but I mean, I think a lot of people are like, well, the government should do something to stop businesses from doing that. So so, so, so you you should define that term for a lot of people. Regulatory capture. Yeah. Okay. So you know, uh, we want to give an example. Okay. Well, we we, I remember once a friend gave us a T-shirt that said somebody should do something, and it was very interesting because implicitly the answer is always the government, and I think that's actually because of our democratic pieties that we think well we vote and our our elected officials are accountable to us so they should they should express our will right, right. well the problem in a lot of cases is that their um the laws on the books end up favoring the very things that they were supposed to stop. So give an so, example of that. Okay, well, one um, example that I just um, was reading about in more detail, though I'd heard of it before in Choke Point Capitalism, this book, is about digital rights management right. on ebooks. And when ebooks started coming into existence, traditional publishers started to panic because it's very easy to copy digital files and distribute them. Well, and also and were, a traditional publisher's business model is selling paper copies of something over which they've that they've invested in. Right, and their whole their whole production is premised on the difficulty of accessing at, at the time. Of course, now with print on demand, they don't really have a stranglehold on that anymore either. So anyway, in in panic, they thought, how can we protect our intellectual property from just, uh, and they were looking at Napster specifically, what Napster did to music. And so something like Amazon swept in and said, have we ever got a solution for you? Digital rights management. And not only did it put a kind of light software lock on your ebook, so uh, it backed it up by getting put into law that anyone who used another piece of stof- software to strip off that lock, meaning specifically you could move your ebook from Amazon's reading ecosystem to another ecosystem like Google Play Books or or uh, Adobe Books, Editions or Apple Books. Or just use, the open, use some kind of open source software because right. the format of an ebook, it's just, a modi- right. it's just a modified web file. But... Actually, by law, you right. can be susceptible to up to $150,000 in fines for taking this software lock off of your ebook. The publishers went for this because they thought, yay, this protects our easily copyable intellectual property. But the reason Amazon went for it and got the law backing it up is because it meant that you were stuck with Amazon right. and you could never, ever move your ebooks out of Amazon. So, folks so rather there, than creating a rights management system that was interoperable between and platform neutral, they get lock in to the Amazon ecosystem. And now I've bought dozens, I don't know, dozens of ebooks, uh, Kindle ebooks, and they're all tied to my old uh, Amazon account. And if I want to get rid of that account because it ca- contains old stale information, I don't want to keep them about that me forever. Um, I lose ownership of those books. But you never own those books. You only license the right to read them on Amazon's right. own proprietary it's another software. another case of um, the consumer is not agreeing to what they think they're agreeing to. Exactly. And uh, furthermore, in the case of the publishers, once Amazon 
got them locked into this system, then as everyone knows, Amazon has hacked away at the prices of books, right. both print books and ebooks, and now audiobooks. Audiobooks, uh, Audible just announced one sidedly that it was going to be reducing prices on audiobooks. And no one has any say in this, not the big, not Penguin Random House and not independent publishers right. or solo publishers. Right. They're just going to reduce them. And Amazon says, well, by reducing costs, there will be more sales and you'll make more money. Well, I mean, no, theoretically, no. that's possible. No, that's just what Amazon says. <laughs> that, no, well, the reason Amazon is doing this is because Spotify now owns a gigantic catalog of audiobooks. Okay, right. So they're in competition. Right. So this is, that's another aspect of regulatory capture is that okay. yeah, uh, we're producers and, and we'd like to be paid. Um, and so it makes sense that we would uh, want to use the resources of the law to uh, protect what is ours in any way possible. But one of the things that happened right from the beginning is uh, whenever you get um, the law and the government involved, um, you need to get lawyers, you need to get people who know the precedents, you need to um, set up an apparatus. And often, and this certainly happened in the case of recording uh, after the war, um, after World War II, uh, and the, the explosion of rock and roll, as that the people who set up the rules, the protection rules, um, are the ones who end up owning the musicians, the rights to the musicians' content. And so now what you have in companies like Spotify um, and in Amazon are effectively the owners of copyright. And so their business is managing copyright. So in many ways, their whole business is built upon um, owning the property of others that they've bought. Right. Um, that's their entire business model. Yeah. So that's, I think, one of the big issues to address when we think about capitalism. It's not just business by itself, but business that is... Um, protecting its own interests with laws, which um, maybe didn't know what they were going to do, but maybe they knew perfectly well what they were going to do. Like there's like, uh, from what I understand in pharma, the uh, revolving door between pharma companies and uh, nationwide regulatory yeah, agencies. Oof, very yeah. sketchy. Yeah. And the largest sketchy. companies like Pfizer um, uh, really don't do any development themselves. They buy and license technologies and handle the regulatory process. So right. they see something promising, uh, new technology, they pick it up, they figure out how to manufacture it and sell it and get it paid and get it approved. Right. That's what they do. And then they own the they own um, the catalog of intellectual property. That's how they make their money is by owning intellectual property. Right. So the reason why communism is a no-go because it's even more of this total conflation of state and marketplace. And what we well, need is non-totalizing uh, solutions. Well, what makes tech and big pharma and things like this so problematic is because of their enormous size and clout and the laws that are already supporting them is they are allowed to cozy up too much and there is this unholy alliance that takes place. So I would say from my perspective, the issue is not capitalism per se, but a particular manifestation of the universal human 
tendency towards extraction and concentration of wealth that always has to be resisted no matter what system that you're focusing on like that 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 is the more useful critique to make yeah and you can see this already happening right now with um, privacy legislation a lot of people in this space are very pro privacy legislation they look at europe and its gdpr which was passed i believe in 2018 uh, as this watershed moment. And I think to some degree that's correct. I think recognizing that there is a new sphere Mm -hmm. uh, in the digital universe of information that previously did not exist uh, and therefore had no protections to it that now can be effectively categorized as uh, one's uh, private property uh, that needs to be protected under law and legally uh, from legally being used and abused to um, prosecute people, say, in court cases, or to aggregate data on others and um, target them with advertising, or simply to um, store upon somebody in a dragnet surveillance. So eventually, when uh, some new government comes into power, they can simply have a database on every citizen. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are things that just didn't exist 30 years ago. And so it's there is a necessity for legal precedents to be updated. However, Um, As I have been searching for people commenting on privacy, one of the things that comes out of this is when you start searching for privacy and security, a lot of the content and a lot of the money um, surrounding the GDPR, as well as the California version of it, Mm. has to do with compliance. Mm. So um, one of the risks in um, being uh, relying too much upon legislative solutions is that you end up Um, writing laws into place that are easy for very particular companies to begin to comply with. Mm. So I heard a good example the other day, which is that um, backups, when you make a backup of information, uh, uh, of course, that can be private information. Um, Say, for example, I go to uh, a a company, uh, company uh, XYZ, and I say, I'd like you to delete, to delete my account. I'm a resident of the European Union. Um, I have that right under the, under the GDPR. Well, company XYZ says, yes, we will be happy to um, delete your data. However, they've been around for 10 or 15 years. They have a data backup archive that includes your personal information. Now, there are probably some grandfathered clauses there uh, saying, okay, well, if you didn't do it before this, we can't expect you to somehow magically begin to to get rid of all the data that you had before when you didn't even know these rules were in place. Um, However, there's a whole business that comes up to say, oh, well, we can offer the new backup solution to you (laughs) that will allow you to comply with this new legislation. And you can bet that the companies that were um, standing in line, that that, that were in place to provide this backup um, solution were lobbying very heavily for data privacy. <laughs> of course they were. <laughs> and writing in very specific clauses that their their very specific product would mm. be able to help you comply with. Right. Um, so this is an issue um, with all kinds of rules. And so that's one of the reasons I, I think there probably is room for um, a various legislative or at least legal challenges to uh, data brokers, data gathering, um, data aggregation, However, I don't think that ought to take away um, solutions that simply render uh, the gathering um, uh, useless and or impossible. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I think we should keep um, revisiting economic issues from time to time here because obviously they're very entangled and we need to disentangle right. uh, good capitalism from evil capitalism. But I, I guess the, my my final thought for just right now would be is that uh, while you and I both, um, Mr. Andre, are in um, humanities disciplines, we're, right. we're scholars, and um, the easiest way to score fast moral points in both of our disciplines is to discapitalism. Like, you just can't go wrong. And um, this is extremely obnoxious because um, scholars like us can survive because there is so much wealth created by capitalism that um, capitalists end up wanting to, like, endow things like universities and um, well, and chairs of studies yeah, and, and, and pay for things like books and libraries. Like, there's no money made in academic publishing. Uh, textbooks, yes, but like the actual scholarly productions, no, absolutely not. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, well, I mean, uh, scholars. It's ignorant and obnoxious for people in the humanities who to, are living to, off of the wealth creation of uh, a system that awards innovation and and. Um, and efficiency without even knowing what they're talking about and so for me a number of years ago I got interested in economics as kind of like a secondary area of of avocational study because I just finally like heard myself like saying these obnoxious things about you know well if we keep going in this direction what will happen and I was like I don't actually know what I'm talking about so um, I, I guess if uh, you out there have absorbed um, uncritical attitudes towards the economy and I'm sure that applies as much to someone who thinks uh, you know big business can do no wrong as to business can never do anything right or we're all on this juggernaut towards total apocalyptic meltdown of the environment or whatever I guess my my encouragement would be is just to, to start reading and learning more widely Right. beyond the quick moral bromides. Right. And I think we should just close with a kind of comment on Shoshana Zuboff's um, book mm. and title, which we began with. Um, what she calls... Um, uh, um, what, what she Sur calls... Surveillance, surveillance capitalism. Surveillance capitalism is built upon this old uh, Marxian um, notion of capital, which is accumulation. So in this model... The large, the companies that were first to market with data uh, gathering capacity now have an outsized influence upon all of our lives, and they are mining that capital or using that capital that they that that is the accumulation that they've that they've won over the years to um, maintain their market position and to f keep others out of the market and to potentially control. The subjects, especially when the state gets interested and says, "Hey, Google, hey, Amazon, uh, hey Alexa, <laughs> um, hey Siri," uh, that um, th that they use use that to s begin to surveil and to control and snuff out free, uh, reflective conversation. Uh, among a democratic populace, as well as business competitors, right? Because they well actually see everything that's coming for them and can snuff those out before yeah. they get to market, even. Right, and so I, I think there is a cautionary, clearly a cautionary tale there, in first to market and in regulatory capture and in um, simply bringing attention to these new economies, which nobody knew. Well, the average public didn't necessarily was not conscious that they were being created. Um, uh, however, I think one of the other aspects of capitalism, and I'm, I'm, I would prefer the the 
the term creative destruction, is that mm-hmm. in this milieu, uh, I, there clearly is a market for uh, tools that um, will protect your private information. Mm. Um, uh, for example, I'm just going to give one example. Um, uh, I'm not, uh, um, I wouldn't call myself an Apple fanboy, but recently, um, this is a sign of a good step in the right direction. Apple uh, allowed advanced data protection on its devices. So mm. what that means is that if you sign up for it and your device is properly updated to the latest operating system, you are able to uh, end-to-end encrypt um, the data that you store on, uh, much of the data that you store on Apple's servers so that they don't have access to it. Your photos, your iCloud, um, uh, your obviously your keychain, your passwords, your health information, so that that is not going to them without your permission. So that's one example. It's not a legislative solution. Mm-hmm. It's a technological solution using encryption that well, prevents... Well, and also a market response solution because right. as people figure out about this, they become outraged and they want N- it. Right, and Apple being the juggernaut that it is with whatever $2 trillion or $3 trillion, <laughs> and well, I don't know, whatever it is, yeah. you have to take everything they say with a grain of salt. Um, but it does seem that within the sphere of big tech companies... They recognize anyway that there is a, a market demand for mm-hmm. privacy, mm-hmm. and they are doing, um, they are trying to address it to some degree. Now, there's all kinds of metadata that they're still collecting on all this, um, right. but the fact that they're addressing it directly, I think, is a positive uh, move, and um, I'm hoping that uh, that the market um, will see this and, and recognize the demand and begin to meet it in various creative ways. And let's hope that the large companies uh, don't try to prevent this through regulatory capture. Oh, they will. But that's one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is to help you, the consumer, even the small player that you are in this enormous thing, um, can start making choices that cumulatively we hope will have some effect. All right.